Would you turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 11? Uh, if you don't have a Bible, let me encourage you to grab a blue Bible onto one of the chairs in front of you. You can find Isaiah 11 on page 562. Most years, the way the calendar falls, we've hardly digested our Thanksgiving gluttonous feasts, and Advent is upon us. Uh, these first, uh, these four Sundays before Christmas are uh, a time of anticipation and preparation. They anticipate from two different perspectives. First, we look backwards to Old Testament anticipation. We anticipate that miracle of Jesus' arrival as ancient Israel did, His arrival or coming being the word Advent. That's simply what the season means. Jesus came to fulfill all of God's promises. But we're kept in suspense because there's still more love to be revealed. That's our Advent series uh, this year. And that should cause us to look ahead to fulfillment to the coming again of the Savior Jesus. These two perspectives on Christmas should always be held together. And those two perspectives are represented in our our text from Isaiah chapter 11 this morning. The people hearing His prophecy in the 8th century B.C. were waiting for the first coming of the Messiah. But this chapter's picture of perfect renewal of all things won't become reality until His second coming. Let's Read Isaiah chapter 11, starting in verse 1. Listen carefully. These are God's words. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, with the breath of his lips. He will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt, and faithfulness the sash around his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together. And a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together. And the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den. The young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this season as we enter it. Stir in us the same kind of anticipation that your people of old felt. Help us to recover that childlike delight at your coming. And give us grace, Lord, to point that anticipation forward as we wait for Jesus' return. Come, O Lord, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen. Two questions this morning. 
First, how will peace on earth ever come? How will peace on earth ever come? We always read, by the way, Isaiah chapter 9 during Advent. Um, The words form the basis of the offertory song John and Michelle sung. And we will read it again, especially during our uh, special lesson, uh, service of lessons and carols on December 18th, Advent Sunday number 4. For to us a child is born... To us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the, of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. It's a classic passage speaking of the coming Savior. In Isaiah chapter 11, two chapters later, where we're focused this morning, gives us a picture of what that peace will look like. Some of you may be familiar with the Casting Crowns version of the song, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. It's one of my favorites during this time of year. The lyrics are based on a poem written in 1863 by the American poet Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. He wrote it on Christmas Day, a couple of years after burying a wife for the second time in his life. And he never really recovered from that grief. It was the same year his son was seriously wounded fighting in the Civil War. And uh, he wrote it because he felt this despair at the sound of Christmas bells, at the picture of everyone celebrating all around him when his heart felt like that was the last thing it could do. I heard it starts old familiar carols. The words repeat, peace on earth, goodwill to men. He refers to the... Um, pain of so many families losing sons to war, and adds, and in despair I bowed my head, there is no peace on earth, for hate is strong and mocks the song. That's the part that doesn't show up in the Casting Crowns version. It's dark. It's a dead end. Um, On Christmas Day, no less, Wadsworth Longfellow wrote this. But then like Almost every psalm of lament in Scripture, there's a turn towards faith. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth He sleep. The wrong shall fail. The right prevail with peace on earth, goodwill to men. I know some of you resonate with the first part of the poem. You hear the old familiar Christmas songs, the poinsettias, the wreaths. You look around and see people decorating and celebrating seemingly with pure happiness. And meanwhile, your heart is broken, maybe from grief, from loss, from life not turning out the way you hoped it would by now. And even if that doesn't specifically describe you, There's a sense in which all of us live in some form of denial of each day's headlines. We'll take whatever measure of peace we can find in our homes, maybe in front of the TV or on a device in the world of social media, but deep down we might feel like Wadsworth, there is no peace on earth. There's just pretending or hiding from the turmoil all around us. 
But this is one reason why private and public worship are important. You and your Bible on your knees at home, and you gathering with God's people here on Sunday mornings. Because time in God's Word and claiming God's promises in prayer and singing together Scripture-saturated songs, uh, we, uh, the, each of these elements remind us that in the face of turmoil all around us, the Bible does not blink and its message is not subtle. Peace, which requires the renewal of all things, the making new of everything that has gone wrong in the world, peace is the goal of all of God's salvation plans and promises. That's what He is working towards. And Advent is a season of anticipating the coming and coming again of the Prince of Peace, Jesus Himself. Israel in Isaiah's time, 700s B.C., was in the midst of turmoil among the nations, political and military tensions all around, internal social chaos that included uh, the consequences of ungodly rule. There was a widening gap between the rich and the poor. There were all kinds of social injustices that plagued the nation. And so when Isaiah chapter 9 verse 2 says, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light that darkness wasn't just out there among the pagan nations. That darkness then and still today is first and foremost in here. We need to look inwardly. It it was dark because God had hidden His face. He had withheld His grace in response to the people's turning away in disbelief. That's always the danger with every generation in the church of Jesus Christ. Israel back then was tempted to look at herself and compare her to the rest of the godless nations all around, bowing down before pagan gods and think, hey, we're not all that bad. But that old temptation isn't that old, is it? We can succumb to the same kind of thinking today. We may be sinners, but we're certainly not as bad as, fill in the blank, however your heart is inclined to point towards a category of bad person, of godless, unbelieving people. Darkness had come in Israel's time, and darkness can come today because darkness reigned in the people's hearts. There was a time coming in Isaiah's time when all signs of life in the line of kings descended from the greatest king, David himself, would disappear all signs of life. In, in so many ways, the health of the nation of Israel throughout the Old Testament uh, determined the health of the nation. As the king went, so went the country, all the people. But soon, in this context of Isaiah, there would be exile from the land, occupation and oppression by pagan foreign rulers, total loss of dignity and identity and religious distinction the people would be carted off. Would God abandon His promises to His people? Especially the one He made in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 6, to David himself in the making of this covenant, where he says in verse 16, "'Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne, David, will be established 
forever. The Lord gives Isaiah the answer here. Chapter 11, verses 1 to 2. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. Jesse was David's father. Uh, A picture of what uh, led to this kingly line of descendants. But it was about to end, or so it seemed. The great kingly tree cut down. But Isaiah 11 is a promise of Messiah, of new life from the near-dead family tree of King David. Israel's hope back then is the same as our hope today. Spirit-led newness of life, even in the face of seeming death. The theme should be familiar to us, resurrection after the cross, Easter Sunday after the darkness of Good Friday. He has come. What will that peace look like? Looking ahead, even from today, Israel looked ahead in the 700s BC. We can look back at what she anticipated, first century coming of Jesus in Bethlehem, but we also need to look forward to the picture of consummation, of of the completion of all of God's salvation promises. Look at this text starting in verse 4. Righteousness and justice will prevail. And interestingly, in each of those halves of the verse, uh, there's mention of the poor and the needy. Social justice is not a sidebar to the outworking of the, the, the gospel, to the overflow of salvation grace from God's people. The needy will be cared for. At the end of verse 4, he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Justice involves God putting evil in its place. That is a core part of setting right what has gone wrong. That's a core element of what righteousness means. Verse 5, Messiah will be all about righteousness and faithfulness. That will be his identity, like a belt around his waist, like a WWF fighter with a championship, righteousness, like a sash around him, like uh, a Miss America contestant, uh, identifying her as, as the state she's coming from. Messiah will be so obviously labeled because that is what he will be about, righteousness and faithfulness, working them out in history. What is this a picture of? That turning of faith in the poem. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail, with peace on earth, goodwill to men. That's the end, the goal, the target of all of God's salvation promises making right what has gone wrong. And then these pictures of, uh, in verses 6 to 9, hostilities will cease, an end of a dog-eat-dog world, literally. Even the most natural enemies, a wolf and a lamb, will live together, and the wolf will not be licking his chops, and the lamb will not be quivering in its um, wool, I guess. (laughs) Danger, destruction, even death will be no more. All things will be made new. A baby will play near a cobra's den. All of these images show sin's curse from Genesis chapter 3 being reversed 
renewal. Creation will no longer be polluted and taken advantage of for profit and convenience. Enmity between animal and human and enmity between human and created world will cease. By the way, I have to admit, as a little bit of an aside, uh, these pictures worry me a little bit. Um, If you think of these animals, the wolf and the lion are designed to be carnivores, and I wonder, what will they eat? What will I eat (laughs) in the new heavens and the new earth? Maybe some of you are not worried, but you go ahead and eat quinoa for all of eternity, not me. Um, I don't know how it's going to work out, but I I believe God is going to work this out. Um, All of this is a picture of God setting right what has gone wrong the making new of all things. It's a picture of righteousness and justice being satisfied, which has to involve His righteous and holy response to sin, which gave birth to death. How does He do that? Ultimately, through the one who is the shoot coming up from the stump of Jesse. Ultimately, through the Messiah, who in the face of hopelessness and despair and darkness showed up on earth to shine His light into darkness, to give hope, to work salvation. The next chapter, Isaiah 12, uh, gives us a a, a picture of the result of salvation on a more personal level. Verses 1 and 2, I will praise You, Lord, although You were angry with me, Your anger has turned away and You have comforted me. Surely God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid." This is forward thinking because uh, I didn't put it up here, but the very first words of Isaiah 12 say, in that day you will say. It's anticipation. It's, it's looking ahead. One day when this shoot from the stump of Jesse becomes a towering oak tree once again, you will be able to say, surely God is my salvation. Messiah has come. The complete rule and reign of Jesus in His kingdom is the only antidote and the complete antidote to poverty, injustice, oppression, inequality, corruption, abuse, everything that is not the way it is supposed to be in today's world that causes us to think along with Longfellow, there is no peace on earth. But Jesus has come and He is coming again to make all things new. That's what Advent is all about. It's a season that reminds us that into darkness the sun shone His light. He came to accomplish the salvation of His people, and He is coming again to bring His work of peace to fulfillment. So what do we do until Jesus comes back? Let me close with a few thoughts. Some, um, some of you asked me after my gospel and politics sermon, what now? And my answer would be the same uh, regardless of who won the election. Overconfidence in victory, your side won, or despair in loss, what will we do? Either one requires a recalibration of your hope. It requires you to, to reconsider whether where you place your hope truly deserves that kind of weight of expectation. Because biblical gospel hope is centered alone on the Lordship of Jesus Christ as the one who will vanquish all of our real enemies, starting with sin and death. He did that on the cross and by walking out of that tomb on the third day. All wrongs will be made right 
And so God's people, we who embrace that salvation by faith, we're called to do what God has designed His people to do, to look within, to deeply repent, to recognize that the darkness is not just out there, but it's here. And when we look within and then identify with desperate faith that sin and lay it at the foot of the cross, we grab hold of the deep refreshment that comes through forgiveness that was earned on the cross of Jesus Christ. Sin was paid for and sin was defeated on Good Friday and Easter Sunday. So we look in to see that depth of sin and then we look up to find what God has provided as a, as a solution. As Psalm 121 puts it, I lift my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. My help does not come from, don't be fooled into thinking, your help comes from a number of conservative-leaning Supreme Court justices. It's a lie. Your help, help doesn't come from that. Your hope is not rooted in that. It's not rooted in relief from any feared loss of religious liberties that may have accelerated with another administration. That's a lie. That is not where your hope is rooted. It is not where your help comes from. Executive orders or any other human endeavor, uh, none could ever substitute for faith, repentance, and gospel grace. That's what the church is called to do. In the face of a crazy election cycle, and as we wait for the second advent of Jesus, which could come at any moment or take another 2,000 years, revival never starts with other people. Revival never starts with um, light sort of parachuting into darkness out of the blue. Revival always starts with the people of God. Revival starts in church with church people, uh, believing people, looking within and recognizing there's more darkness than I would ever dare to admit, but the light of Jesus exposes it, yes, to shame and guilt, but then quickly provides forgiveness and freedom. And then revival spreads from church outward into the communities. That's what we need to be about, people. Faith and repentance. Yes, prayer for our government. Yes, prayer that uh, rights, uh, wrongs will be righted in uh, this day and age, it, it physically, relationally, um, tangibly. But that's not our hope. Our hope is that Jesus promises when He comes again, when He advents for the final time, all things will be made new. Another thought, lack of biblical hope is sin. It's sin. It's misplaced trust. It repeats the pattern of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden when they thought in relation to God, your promises and your love, I don't believe can fully satisfy me. I don't believe they're for my best, and so I will pursue my own path, eat the fruit, go my own way. I'll believe in my efforts or our human endeavors instead of your word. Lack of biblical hope is sin because it's misplaced trust. Uh, Whether that leads to euphoria at times, at temporary success at what you've accomplished or what others have accomplished 
on a human level, or whether it leads to despair at humanity's continued decline and failure, each is sin. It's misplaced. The shoot from the stump of Jesse is our only real lasting hope. Jesus has come and He's coming again. Last thought. There's a balancing act when it comes to anticipating Jesus' return. We don't waste time, and I use that term, that that word waste deliberately. We don't waste time trying to figure out what signs of contemporary events mean this in Scripture so that we can predict the coming of Jesus. He's coming soon. Paul said that. He believed it. And, and with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. It's not our job to speculate. Jesus said He's coming back like a thief in the night. He said, even the Son of Man does not know the hour or the day. Our calling is to be ready and to place all of our hope in that future without avoiding, ignoring, minimizing life in the present. That's the balancing act that's very difficult. To live as um, men and women and children in light of the end of history without forgetting that we have responsibilities, <laughs> we have duties, we have a calling to be ambassadors, to be light in a dark world. But one way we can do that is working as working for the Lord. Uh, sometimes we tend to think that work is this uh, necessary drudgery that we need to get through in order to enjoy the rest of life. But work is part of God's design, and it was there before sin entered the world. Adam, and, uh, Adam was working in Genesis 1. Eve joins him. They're working, and only then did sin enter the world and cause work to become toilsome, burdensome, frustrating, inefficient. That's the, the fallenness of work. But work itself is good. Author uh, Nathan Birma says that retirement, unfortunately, creates this false distinction between what we think of as loathsome work and blissful leisure. And once you trans, uh, transition from all this hated stuff into retirement, then you can uh, do what you've always wanted to do. He says, that's a false distinction. Instead, quote, to work in daily hope for heaven is to see your work, paid or unpaid, for a boss, a family, a church, or a friend, as culture-making in preparation for life in the heavenly city. Work is working for the Lord. Not to just bide your time, not to just keep busy, but because it has inherent value if you work for the Lord and you're culture-making in preparation for life in the heavenly city. I love that phrase. And a naturally related focus flowing out of that statement is simple living. How much do we need to hear that between Black Friday and Cyber Monday? Simple living. Listen to James Twitchell, another author. He says, when we have few things, we make the next world holy. When we have plenty, we enchant the objects around us. What he means there is we make them sources of hope. We treat them as God's substitutes, as idols. We enchant the objects around us. What is so special about the next world? It promises peace. 
harmony, everything right, perfect relationships, no death, pain, destruction. The Bible doesn't tell us when, but it very clearly tells us who and how. Jesus the Son came in humility, born in a manger. But when He comes again, His second advent, He will come in glory and power. The Father will give Him all power to accomplish His will, and He will wield that power against all of His enemies. Everything that sin is and everything that sin does to bring complete victory and resurrection glory and the making new of all things. Christ has come. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, this season is so unique because it causes us to look backwards. It also causes us to look forward. We have the richness of both perspectives because of Your Word. And we ask, Lord, that You would help us to capture ancient Israel's sense of longing and anticipation and that we would focus that now at Jesus' return. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Give us grace to say and believe that we would rather have you, Lord Jesus, than silver or gold. Give us grace to trust in you, to love you well, to surrender all to you. Our hope, our treasure are all in all. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.